Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning, and I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Isaiah, chapter 6. To me, this is one of the most powerful passages of Scriptures as it gives us an intimate view into the nature and character of our God. Follow with me as we look at this this morning. Isaiah the prophet says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their feet, with two they covered their faces, with two they flew. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the thresholds and the doorposts of the temple shook. And the whole temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Pray with me for just a minute. Father, open up our hearts as we study Your Word. Open our minds so that we can see its truth and open our hearts that we would not only see the truth of this passage, but by Your grace, we would be enabled to see You. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, my mother celebrated her 90th birthday. And uh, shortly after her birthday, I had the, the opportunity to travel to Illinois to spend some time with her. And while she doesn't have a clue what happened earlier in the day, she remembers the past quite well. And so we spent a couple of days just talking about the past. And as I talked with my family, we just kind of sat around and marveled at how the world has changed in the last 90 years from the time that my mother was born until today. And then as I had the long drive home, I spent a lot of time thinking about how the world has changed in the last 20 years. And as I reflected on that, I came to the conclusion that while I've always prided myself as being a person who could embrace change, I don't think I like things anymore. 
I guess that's a sign of my own age, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I look around the world and it's just not, you know, what I knew as a boy growing up in the 50s and 60s living in rural America. I look at the political changes, doesn't matter what side of the political fence you're on. I look at the cultural changes. I look at the way that the world around us has changed. I I, I see things that grieve me. I see things that hurt me. I see things that make me angry. And as I began to reflect on all those things, it occurred to me that it, it occurred to me that, you know, I was afraid. I don't like what I see coming. I don't like it. It worries me. It's very uncertain. And then it got worse. Not only am I afraid, I discovered that, you know what, I'm pretty arrogant about it too because the reason I'm afraid is that everybody else in the world is not as smart as I am. Not as good as I am. Don't have the clear picture of things like I do. If they did, the world would be the way I would like it. And then you know what comes after fear? Anger. Fear, arrogance, and then anger. Well, if they just weren't so stupid. And I see it all around me. It doesn't comfort me much, but the reality is I I see these three things all around me. Fear, arrogance, and anger. And it doesn't matter what economic status you walk in. It doesn't matter what political stripe you may be. It it seems like the whole world around us is, is revolving around these things. And yet, how do we as Christians respond to that? How do we, who are followers of Jesus, who who want to hold to a biblical viewpoint of the world, how do we respond not only to what we see happening within ourselves, but what we see happening in the world around us? And what I was reminded of is that all the things going on in the world around us and circulating through our lives is nothing new. I don't care what you can look at in the world around us. It is not new. Solomon understood that. He said, there's nothing new under the sun. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, you know what, if, if we're going to live as followers of Jesus in the world that is coming, what we need to do is go back to our ancient roots and understand the pattern that God set from us before the foundations of the world as to how we were to live as the followers of Christ. So what do we need to have? What do we need to understand? Or maybe what do we need to remember to do that? The first thing I would like for us to focus on this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 6 is that to live as followers of Jesus in the world that's coming, we need to be a people who remember God's glory. Now, God's glory isn't something we talk a whole lot about, frankly. It's it's an easy word for us to latch on to, but we really don't talk much about it. If you want to define glory, I think the easiest way to do it is to understand God's glory as the the sum total of all of His attributes. Everything that makes up his character and being is displayed to the world as his glory. But, but we struggle with that because that's so big to hold on to. And so we like to break it down and just take pieces of it and focus on. 
And so instead of talking about the glory of God, we love to talk about God is love. And that's great. Is God love? Absolutely, the Bible is is overwhelmingly convincing that God is a God of love. But the problem is if we stop there, we have a truncated view of God as well as His gospel. Now, when God came to Isaiah, and what we have here is God coming to Isaiah and calling him to a task. And when God does it, He doesn't send a messenger. He doesn't send a message. When God calls Isaiah, he reveals himself to him. And you know, the extraordinary thing is that's how he always does it. It's how he did it to Moses, revealed himself in a burning bush, revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. Even today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus because God has revealed himself to you through his Holy Spirit, opened up our eyes and hearts so that we can see him. So God comes and He reveals Himself to Isaiah. Now whether this is actually God bringing Isaiah into His presence or a vision, I don't know. I don't think it matters. Both are equally valid. Whether God has whisked Isaiah into the very presence of heaven or God Himself has come down into the temple and filled the temple and brought Isaiah to the temple, I don't know but it doesn't matter. Either is equally valid. But what I do know is that what Isaiah saw was God Himself, and more specifically, the Apostle John tells us in John chapter 12 that who Isaiah saw was Jesus. Isaiah 12, 41, if you want to look that up. This vision is a vision of Jesus. Not the baby in a manger. Not the sacrificial lamb. This is a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus in all of His glory. This is a vision of the Jesus who is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. It's a picture of the Jesus that is going to come again. This is a picture of the Jesus who has called us to Himself. And what does Isaiah see? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Just the very picture of the vision is a claim of power and authority. When Isaiah saw Jesus, he says, this unmistakably, undeniably is the ruler of all things. And he says the train of his robe, this is an interesting part of his vision, filled the temple. He just didn't have a train on his robe. It encompassed everything. There was nothing in the temple that was not covered by it. Jesus was the center of everything. There was nothing in the temple that was relevant except Jesus himself and his power and his glory. And then the vision of Jesus gets really, really interesting. He talks about seraphs. I find this fascinating. These are creatures created specifically by God to declare His glory. And the description of them, try to picture this in your mind. He says they have three pairs of wings. 
And with one pair of wings, they cover their feet. With one, they cover their faces. With one, they fly. And it says, day and night, they encircle the throne, crying out, holy, because they want the whole world to know who Jesus is. Now, you know what I find fascinating about them? It's this. Have you ever wondered why they're covering their faces and covering their feet? It's because these sinless creatures, sinless, who have spent their entire created existence crying holy, cannot stand or fly in the presence of Jesus, the glorified Jesus, without covering their faces and covering their feet. He is that holy. He is that glorious. He is that powerful that even a sinless creature cannot stand in His presence without acknowledging His unworthiness to be there. You see, that is a picture of the glorious Jesus who not only has loved us and called us, but a glorious Jesus who sits on the throne of heaven and rules over everything. This is His world. We live as His called children in His world. And the message that underlies everything is what on earth do we have to be afraid about? If we are followers of Jesus, we can live with the absolute confidence not, that not only is, is there a glorious God who lives in heaven, who has power over all things, but this world is His. It is fulfilling His purpose and we are His in it. We do not need to be afraid. What can possibly ever take us away from this glorious Jesus? We need to remember that glory. We need to allow that glory to shine on us in our lives day by day, every minute of every day, so that as we walk through this world, we know why we're doing it and who we're doing it for. But then secondly, not only do we need to remember the glory of God, we need to remember how sinful we really are. We really do forget that. We really don't like to think about it. In fact, not only do we forget how sinful we are, it is very easy for us to convince ourselves that we're actually pretty good. And while I may not be as good as I ought to be, I am certainly better than him or her. By comparison, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm not out beheading people. I'm not out selling drugs. I'm not prostituting myself. When I look at the world around me, and I actually stop and think about it, I do pretty well. And we have this amazing capacity to convince ourselves that even though we are sinners, when you get right down to it, as Jerry Bridges would say, my sins are pretty acceptable. They're not mad. I mean, really. If, if I am really, really good, and the worst I can, I can convict myself of is pride, and maybe a little arrogance, and, and, you know, well, maybe I steal a little bit from the office, and, and, and maybe I'm not totally honest to people, but it's always about little things. You know, it's okay. 
It's okay until we come into the presence of Jesus. What does Isaiah find out when he finds himself in the presence of the glorious Jesus? Isaiah comes before Jesus and he says, Woe to me, for I am ruined. Literally, the word ruined means dead. Isaiah looks at Jesus and he says, Oh no, I'm a dead man. Now, you know, I don't know much about Isaiah. We, none of us know anything about Isaiah previous to his call. But I'm going to assume that Isaiah was your typical Jewish man. I'm going to assume that he knew his Scriptures as every Jewish boy grew up knowing the Pentateuch. I'm going to assume that he celebrated all the festivals and kept the law to the best of his ability. I'm going to assume that Isaiah, as he stood among his fellow Israelites, would look around and say, I'm a pretty good guy. And he believed it until the very moment that he saw Jesus. And then he knew he was dead. Because for the first time in his life, he understood, he realized that the standard of righteousness by which he was going to be measured was not other people and not even what he thought about himself. It was the holiness of Jesus himself. He says, I am a dead man because I have seen the King. And it's not just Isaiah who had this problem. Isaiah said, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. But did you notice he also broadened the problem? He said, and I come from a people of unclean lips. It's not just that Isaiah was a sinner who could not stand before Jesus. He said, we all are. Every one of us. What Paul says in Romans chapter 3 is true of each one of us. He says, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. <laughs> you see, having Jesus reveal Himself to us not only changes our view of ourselves, Having Jesus reveal Himself to us changes our view of each other too. And not just that we say, well, I was right about Him. He's a sinner. No, it changes our view to the point that when we look at each other, we say, I'm no different than you are. Every one of us as we stand before Jesus is exactly in the same boat. When I stand in the presence of Jesus, I have no more standing than, than the man who's beheading Christians in the Middle East. I have no more standing than the rapist or murderer in the prisons that I've been in. I have no more standing than the drug addicts and dealers and prostitutes that live on my street. This is what happens when we see the King. Not only does the vision of the glorious Jesus wipe away our fear, but it also wipes away our arrogance. <laughs> Who am I? Anything that I would consider righteous that I try to bring before God, Isaiah will tell us later. He says it's like filthy rags. 
any act of righteousness I try to bring to say, see God, I told you I was good, actually condemns me before Him. It doesn't sound very positive and it doesn't sound like the kind of message that we want to proclaim to the world, but it is the absolute truth. We are all far more sinful than we can possibly imagine. But you see, it's not just that God's glory is so great that it illustrates our awful sin. But it's that we need to remember the magnitude of God's grace. Isaiah shows us the reality that God's grace is greater even than our sin. Isaiah is, the Scriptures don't tell us, but forgive me if I take a little liberty here. Isaiah is on his face, (laughs) waiting for the shoe to drop. Literally waiting to die. And then he says this extraordinary thing happens. Isaiah, knowing he is dead because he has seen too much, knowing that he has no hope, there can be no mercy for him because God cannot overlook the depth of sin that he now sees in himself. What happens is that he becomes the recipient of this extraordinary act of grace. Isaiah says, one of the seraphs flies to the altar the fire on the altar and he takes a a set of tongs and he takes a coal from it and then he places it in his hand and he flies to me and he takes that coal and Isaiah said he touched my lips with it and he said see your guilt is taken away your sin is atoned for. Now what does that mean? How can that possibly forgive or atone for anything? You know, to atone literally means it's been purchased. It's been paid for. But we have to remember, what was the altar? The altar was the place where sacrifice for sin was offered. The altar of the temple was the place where the bull and the lamb would be brought and slaughtered and the blood poured over it and the sacrifice burned in the fire symbolizing payment for the penalty of sin. And yet we know that there was never any sacrifice of the Old Testament that actually atoned for sin. The blood of a lamb, the blood of a bull could not pay for our sin. But what it did was it pointed the Israelites to Jesus. It pointed them to the one who would come and offer the sacrifice and by offering their sacrifices year after year, they were putting their faith and trust in what Jesus would do. And the eternal Jesus applied the power and the grace of His his eternal redemption and from the fire on the altar touched Isaiah's lips and He said, This is what I have done for you. I will pay the penalty. I will take the punishment for your sin. Because of the altar and what I will do, you are forgiven. And you are atoned for. It's so hard for us to grasp that. It's so hard for us to really internalize what that means because we have such a hard time understanding how sinful we are before such a holy God. But Isaiah got it. 
Isaiah realized he was literally saved from eternal death. Jesus, by His act of grace, took someone which was dead and made him alive. Isaiah understood. You know, think about this for a minute. What, the Scriptures tell us that because of our sin, we are dead in our sin. What do dead people do? You ever known a dead person to do anything except stay dead? They don't get up. They don't talk. They don't make decisions. Isaiah said, I was dead. Isaiah said, I did nothing. Isaiah didn't make a decision to be different. Isaiah didn't make a decision to, to be right now before God. Isaiah was simply the recipient of a grace he did not deserve or earn. And you see, that's the reality of every one of us. If we are a follower of Jesus, I understand that the only difference between me and all those wicked people in the world is that I've received a grace that I did not deserve or earn. Boy, that changes our perspective on things, doesn't it? There's nothing special about me. I'm reminded daily of the depth of my own sin. You know, I, I think that's what it means to be sanctified, frankly. We think of sanctification as getting better and better and better. I believe the biblical view of sanctification is that the more we are sanctified, the more clearly we see the reality of our sin and grieve it and hate it and trust Jesus. And when we see that, it changes the whole vision of our lives and our future. And it is at this point that Isaiah is now ready to receive his call. And, and have you noticed the odd way that God calls him? Jesus calls him? He doesn't command him. He doesn't say, Isaiah, in light of what I have done for you, do this. Jesus says, huh, who am I going to send? Now granted, there wasn't a big audience. Jesus says, who will go for us? And Isaiah responds. Not because he had to. Not because he was commanded to. Isaiah responds because he understands what God has just done for him. He is a new creation. And, and Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. And what I, I, I would really like just to, to leave you with this morning is this. Jesus never changes the way He operates. Jesus, who has done a, great, a work of grace in our hearts, stands and He says, Who will go for me? And if we understand the depth of what He has done for us, we can't help but say, Send me. We don't make excuses. You know, it, it, it begins to, to make sense of some of the stories that Jesus tells. Why, why He says the person has to go back and bury his parents or the person has to go back and do this and that. Can't follow Him. Because He says, when I, when I change the heart, the response is, send me now. I'm yours. And He goes on to tell Isaiah what it is He wants him to do. And, and He's done the same for us. I, I don't have time this morning, but if you go back in the Sermon on the Mount... That was Jesus' general call to every one of us. He says, go out into the world poor in spirit. Live in this world as, as, as salt and light who, 
who love those who hate you and prays for those who persecute you, turns the cheek to those who would strike you. He says, go into this world not displaying your righteousness. He says, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, do it in secret so that nobody can see. He says, what you want people to see is me living in you. And so be willing to die so that people can see me. And the call doesn't change. What changes is us. My prayer this morning for each of us is that Hopefully, maybe starting this day, God, by His mercy and grace, will give us a vision of the glorious Jesus that will not only take away our fear and wipe away our arrogance and replace anger with love, but will give us a sense of call that what this world does is irrelevant and what the world does to us is irrelevant. What matters is knowing who we are in Jesus and living for Him. May God give us the grace to do that. May He use us well. Think about that.